Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to reflect upon what you have revealed to us, and especially to reflect upon the divine nature of our Savior, understanding that he is not just a man, that he is not a man that was somehow blessed by you and granted divinity, but that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity, and that just as the Old Testament scriptures we've recently studied predicted, there would be a uh, joining of humanity and deity in a human being, a human being that would also be fully God, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the passages we study, to remember the things we study, that we may uh, express these things to others as you give us opportunity to witness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, we've been studying in Romans. Uh, Romans 9.5 says, Of whom, that is, of Israel, the patriarch, are the fathers, that is, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the other brothers, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, that's just a phrase for his humanity, Christ came. Now, if you look at this in terms of your Bible, I've moved this appositional phrase to its appropriate position, in my opinion. Christ is the, the phrase, the eternally blessed God, is appositional to Christ, not to who is over all. Uh, and so by putting it in its correct location, it clarifies the fact that this is one of the most profound statements in the New Testament on the deity of the Messiah. He doesn't say Jesus. Uh, usually when Je- the, 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 his human name, Jesus is emphasized, either his role as Savior is being emphasized or his humanity. But when Christos is used, Christ, Christos is the Greek translation from the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. It's, it should be understood that way. Paul's talking from his Jewish background and he is saying the Messiah was the eternally blessed God. He is making a profound claim that the Messiah was to be deity. And we've looked at these passages in the last couple of weeks. We've looked at Isaiah 7.14. Last week we looked at Isaiah 9.6 and Isaiah 7.14. Now there's a couple other passages I 
touched on last week. I want to go back and put them on the screen briefly tonight because they point out a major theme on on the messianic passages in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 8, 21 and 22, talking about the judgment that God was going to bring on, on Judah, Israel and Judah, because of their disobedience to God, he expresses that in verse 22 as being under trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness, darkness being a depiction of the harsh judgment of God and removal from the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and removal from that ongoing revelation that God provided via his presence in the temple. In Isaiah 9-1, the promise is given that this gloom and darkness was not permanent, that it was temporary and would be replaced by a gr- seeing a great light being restored to a position of blessing and recipients of the divine revelation and the divine presence. In Isaiah 9-1, there's a contrast. It should be translated because, indicating an explanation, because the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed. That was when God initially brought judgment in the north, in the area of of Galilee, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness, spiritual darkness, at the time of the arrival of Jesus. People walked in darkness have seen a great light. This verse is quoted in Matthew. The people have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, they were in darkness, upon them a light has shined. So this is a theme we're going to see picked up in the New Testament in these three uh, promises, these three passages that I talked about last time that emphasize the deity of Jesus. And what I'm pointing out is you can't fully comprehend what's going on in the New Testament without this Old Testament background. Not that you can't understand a certain amount. But when you get into John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, they're borrowing imagery, specifically imagery of light and darkness. And it comes, they didn't just develop this, they didn't invent it. It comes right out of the Old Testament. You have to connect the dots. When we get into studying the Bible and how we study the Bible, remember there's there's four basic arenas, observation, what does the text say, interpretation, what does the text mean, and then correlation, which how does this fit with other other passages of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, or what some call the analogy of Scripture. And what we see is that the context of John 1, 1, is, and 1, 1 through 5, which is where we're going to begin tonight, the context of John 1, 1 through 5 is John chapter 1, 1 through 18. That's the prologue to the gospel of John. The context of John 1, 1 through 18 is the gospel as a whole. The gospel of John is in the context of four gospels. It fits in a particular picture 
of the Lord Jesus Christ that is somewhat distinct from that of the other three. The four Gospels are in a broader context of the New Testament. The New Testament is in a context of the whole Bible. The New Testament is a continuing revelation from the Old Testament after a period of approximately 400 years when there was no new revelation. And so when we talk about context, we don't just talk about the narrow, immediate context, but we broaden it out until it relates to the whole Bible. So once we do that, then things that are said in a particular verse or passage uh, gains uh, a certain greater level of, of significance because we're tying it to the whole of Scripture. It's, God just didn't give us isolated verses. Proverbs is that way. But the rest of the Bible mostly is not. They're not just isolated verses or clauses or paragraphs. They fit within a structure of thought. So we have this light and darkness idea uh, depicted in Isaiah and as well as the other prophets in the Old Testament. Now, John 1.1, as I said last time, there are three passages that are central to understanding the deity of Christ. John 1, 1 through 5 and 14, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and Hebrews 1, 3. Those three, now there are many other passages that emphasize the deity of Christ, but if you can remember those three, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, if you can remember those three, then if you're talking to somebody and they raise this question, then you can go to those passages, the Old Testament passage or passages were Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, and Micah 5.2. Six passages in all, and, and if you have them, write down in your margins the references to the other five, and then if you have your Bible with you, you can move around and find those fairly easily. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Notice, in light of the emphasis on the creator-creature distinction in Paul's presentation of the gospel in Acts 17 John begins, and most people think if you're going to have one book in the Bible that's going to clarify the gospel for unbelievers, it ought to be John. John says in John 20, 31, these are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. If there's one book you ought to read that you can use to evangelize people, it would be the gospel of John. And where does he start? He starts with creation. He starts with creation. Creation isn't some ancillary, secondary doctrine of Scripture. I have heard people say, sadly, why get into any discussion on creation when you're trying to witness to somebody? It's a distraction. Maybe the Apostle Paul should have been told that. Maybe John should have been told that. Oh, wait a minute, they're writing under the inspiration of Scripture. Maybe the Holy Spirit should have been told that. My, my. Okay. All things were made with, uh, through, through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the what? 
the light of men. Here we get our introduction to this theme, the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Where do you think John got this idea? He didn't just get it because the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. He got it because he knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He's writing this under inspiration, but he's not inventing it. It's, he's not just a mindless robot uh, holding up like, like a tube goes through his mind and the Holy Spirit thro- uh, pours the words and they go through his mind without being shaped by his own knowledge, his own frame of reference, his own personality, his own background. John is writing. It's just that the Holy Spirit is the hidden control, uh, quality control agent who's going to make sure that what John writes is without error. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Connect that back to what we read in uh, Isaiah 8. So let's look at what, what he says here. This is one of the most profound passages of Scripture. It's, it's sort of a truism in Greek studies that the simplest Greek is the Greek of the Apostle John. It may be simple, basic vocabulary. It may be uh, simple sentence structures, but it is some of the most profound erudite reasoning and thought that's ever been put to paper. It may not be difficult to translate it, but it is certainly something that is challenging to fully comprehend and understand, especially when you get into the epistles of John. And he has such an economy of language. Every phrase, every word counts. It's simple, but it is profound. In the beginning is the first statement. In the beginning. This starts off with the Greek preposition in plus the word for beginning, which is arche, which is the word for um, for beginning. Now, I thought I would just, I did this this afternoon. I thought, well, maybe I'll show this to you tonight to show you a little bit about what we do and what Lagos is capable of. Um, let me put this screen over here first. Now, this just this just gives you the text. I think most of you can probably see it. The words are uh, large enough. I'm going to go to John 1. And what we see in John 1 is this phrase right here in the Greek, which is in arche. And that's this phrase. See how when I highlighted it over here, it had sympathetic highlighting on the left and highlighted that phrase. That's the translation uh, for in arche. It has a preposition in, but it has no uh, article. Now, it's, that's important to understand, but it's correctly translated as a definite noun in the beginning. And I'll show you why with this particular screen. I ran a search on the word RK, and we'll just tighten this up just a little bit so you can see we have it in parallel. This is the kind of thing that helps when doing word studies like this. I've got a list of all 55 times that the noun RK is used in the New Testament. In a grammar study, what we're looking for is 
Uh, is there some significance to the fact that there's not an article there? Is it in a beginning or in the beginning? Now, there are some words like God that are inherently definite. There are also words in many other words in English that are definite and do not carry the definite article in English because we know English and we know that when that word is used, it's a definite noun. In British English, it's more common for them to talk about going to hospital, going when I was in village the other day. Uh, they, leave, they leave out the definite article because it's understood that certain nouns are inherently definite and the, the article does not need to be there. This is same, the same for Greek. In fact, what you, uh, uh, what you see in Greek is, and if you notice, this is a kind of work you can do even if you don't know Greek, you can do a search for RK and you can see every time it's used and it highlights the translation over here. Notice all these different places, you just have the preposition, in this case, apo, plus the noun. You don't, and it's always translated as definite, even though it's not there. Now, the best place to see this is in Mark 1.1. Mark starts off, arche, beginning, to evangelio of the gospel, Jesu Christu of Jesus Christ. Now, we wouldn't translate that a beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That would not make sense at all. The word arche is inherently definite and should always be translated unless the context demands otherwise as as the beginning. And another sort of idiosyncrasy related to Greek is that when you have an article and a noun, if you're going to put a preposition in front of that noun, it replaces the article. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but if you go through all of the uses of the word arche in the Greek New Testament, which is what I was doing with this little exercise today, there is no place where you have a, uh, an article used with the noun. You do here, but it's not talking about the beginning. It's talking about leaders, just as you have principalities and powers, this is magistrate. So it's a totally different concept. Whenever the word arche is used with the sense of beginning, it never has an article, not once. So it shouldn't be translated in a beginning at all. It should be translated just as it is in the Hebrew of Genesis 1.1, ba, that's the preposition in, reshit, that's the Hebrew word for beginning. It's not beha-rashit, ha being the article. It's bet-rashit because the article is replaced by the preposition. So this is a what's known also as a semitism. And John, being a uh, native Israelite, understands. Now, how did I end up with Colossians 1 there? understands exactly what, um, there we go, exactly what he is doing. When he says in arche, he means in the beginning. It is a specific point in time. In fact, the Greek text makes it very clear, I mean, if you look it up in the dictionary, that the word 
arche is not only inherently definite, but it refers to a point in time before which nothing had occurred. And so it's talking about the beginning of time, the beginning of successive events, the beginning of any kind of creation. And uh, so we say in the beginning or at the point at which creation began. That's really what he's talking about, at the point when we went from nothing to something. At the point of ex nihilo, which is a Latin phrase for out of nothing, at the point of ex nihilo creation was the word. Now, if you're taking an observation of this particular passage, just paying attention to what's there, you notice that three times we have the English word was. Each time you have the English word was, it is a translation of the Greek uh, verb me, which is an imperfect active indicative. Now, you often hear me talk about these parts of speech. Sometimes it's not as significant within a passage as other times, so I don't always make a point of it. But many times it is significant to understand each element in the parsing of a verb especially. An imperfect tense is a form, one of the forms of the past tense. The imperfect tense looks at past action as, as being continuous, uh, continually going along. Sometimes it can be a short, uh, short time frame. Sometimes it's a long time frame, but it's not looking at it as just a snapshot. It's looking at it more like a movie. Okay. Or for those of you who are very young, it's like looking at an AVI file or a .mov file. Okay, you're looking at a YouTube video, and it's short, if it's or it's long, but it's something. It's a video. It's action in progress. Whereas the aorist tense is like looking at a snapshot. Now that snapshot is just summarizing something that happened without saying anything about the length or duration of the action. It's very important that this is an imperfect tense because it's talking about a point in time when time began, and when that point in time occurred, the word was continuously already in existence. Okay? So there was an existence before the beginning. And what existed continuously before that point in time of a beginning was something referred to here in the text as the Lagos, as the Lagos. And this is the term here, Lagos, and it can be and is translated a wide variety of ways depending on the context. Uh, We translate the word because word has to do with revelation. Word has to do with communication of content. It has to do with that communication of, of God to man. And this fits the context where we say, where we look down in John, um, John 118, which reads, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Greek word for declare in that verse is exegeo. Hmm, sound familiar? Like exegesis? 
That's where we get our word exegesis, to unpack something from something, like when you unpack your suitcase after a trip. Uh, that's the idea of exegesis. Jesus Christ has unpacked for us who the Father is. So that has to do with revelation. So when we have a word here that can mean a number of different things, how do we know which, how, how do we know what's in the context? Well, you have to read and understand the context and the idea of word as communication or revelation is, is important. Uh, other ideas in logos or reason, when we ta- use English words like biology, bio-logos, bios-logos, two Greek words, zoe-logos, uh, is also the study of life, study of animals, uh, zoology. These are that, so that has the idea of all coming from logos. We have a word in Greek, logizomai, which we've studied a lot. Logos is the root of it as the noun. It's a verb meaning to give an account for something. It's an accounting term to add something up, to reckon it, or to, in some cases, meaning to make an imputation of something. Uh, logos can refer to word or matter or a thing, and it can refer to something that is uh, that is spoken. So what we see here in this verse is in the beginning, something continue was already in existence before that point in time. That w- was the word. The word was continuously in existence, and the word uh, was with God, continuously existing with God, and the word was continuously existing with God. So we have this second preposition I put into the text, pros, which indicates being a, a relationship. It indicates p- close proximity. Sometimes that's been translated face-to-face. But it's not just face-to-face like two stone statues standing nose-to-nose, chest-to-chest, eyeball-to-eyeball. It emphasizes a relationship. It emphasizes fellowship, a husband being with his wife or uh, a father being with his children. It indicates that kind of uh, relationship between persons. So it's emphasizing that the Lagos is a person and that God is a person. So that's one of the uh, implications here with that particular preposition. The word was with in relationship or proximity or fellowship with God. And then John goes on to say, and the word was God. Now this last phrase has, has brought up quite a bit of discussion in the sense of how in the world, uh, what, how are we to understand this? And in the Greek, it reads, uh, and the word was, the word has the article as it does in the English. Logos has the article. Then you have the verb, and then you have the word God without the article. And at this point, you have some people in history. Uh, they were called Arians back in the early uh, fourth century. They didn't believe that Jesus was eternal. They believed that there was a point in time in eternity past when the second person of the Trinity was created. And um, and today they're known as Jehovah's Witnesses. And they 
say in their little translation, if they ever knock on your door and they present their little New World translation, they will have you read from it, and it will read, and the word was a God. I think somebody's phone was going off back somewhere. Okay. The word was a God. What this is saying is that the claim is that this was simply uh, a statement that the word had deity, but there is a Greek word that is perfectly good to use uh, if you're going to simply express that idea that the word was divine or possessed deity, that would be the Greek word theos, T-H-E-I-O-S, and that's not the word that is used here. So we have some really profound things going on in John 1.1. In the beginning was the logos. Now this was a key term to, for both Greeks and Jews. In rabbinical thought by this time, the saying of God, in the Old Testament, Amar is the Hebrew word for God said. It's Amar. And so when the um, later rabbis would talk about the sayings of God, the speaking of God, they used a participial form of that, which was Memra. And so Memra would be translated as also translated as Lagos. So if you were Jewish and you were reading this, you would be thinking in terms of the Memra of God. But John isn't really writing to a Jewish audience, although he it is known that there are Jews uh, around where he's writing. By the time John wrote the Gospel of John, he was living in Ephesus. He was far from the land of, of Israel. He's uh, It's late in his life. There's debate even among conservatives on the relationship of the writing of the Gospel of John to the writing of Revelation. Some people think that Revelation was written last. Other people think the Gospel of John was written last. I'm not sure how to solve that or if we can solve that debate. We know, though, that this is late. This is after the fall of Jerusalem. This is when the Apostle John is living as a pastor in Ephesus. And so he is communicating to a Greek mind. But there are also, we know from our study in Acts, a number of uh, Jewish background Christians who are present. So this is one of those words that's uh, double or triple entendre. It has a loaded sense to it. Uh, for Jews, it would remind them of the memra of God, the revelation of God, the communication of God from the Old Testament. And to Greeks, it would speak of reason. It would speak of communication. It had a rich history within the philosophical tradition. On Tuesday nights in our Acts study, we've been looking at Paul's presentation to the uh, 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 to the philosophers at the Areopagus, and this is composed of two different groups: the Stoics and the Epicureans. Well, the Stoics believed in logos; for them, it was a rational first principle by which everything existed. But see, when they heard the word logos, they're thinking of it as something within creation, not as something distinct from creation. They violated that creator-creature distinction. And so Stoics understood logos to be this uh, principle of reason 
by which everything existed and which is the essence of the rational human soul. So every human being participates in this logos. And on Tuesday night, I started getting into this abstract doctrine that a lot of people haven't heard before. If you've listened to Charlie's Framework series, he talks about it. You listen to a few other people, they talk about it, but it's really not talked about much. But we have to understand it. It's that thing called the chain of being. And everything participates in logos, in reason, as that first principle according to Stoicism. And the further down that chain of being you go, where there's less and less sentient life, the less it participates in logos. But logos is like that, uh, we, in, in modern thought, the divine spark that everybody has within them. So this is where these kinds of ideas uh, come from. Philo was a Jew who lived at that same time, and he talked about the Logos of God, but he had a totally different meaning for it. For him, the Logos of God is simply, it's almost like our the biblical idea of the image of God, but not really. He's using it to refer to the ideal man or the primal man, and for him, Logos has no personhood or personality and can't become incarnate. So this word Logos took on different senses with different philosophical systems. John gives it a whole new sense the way he uses it in the Gospel of John. It is a word, it, it, it describes a person, as we're going to see, who is in close fellowship with God, he's with God, and he was God. In verse 2 we read, he was in the beginning with God. So at that point in time, when time begins, when creation begins, when we move from nothingness, and the only thing that exists is God, to creation, uh, the Word is present with God. Then in verse 3, we have a creation statement. So verses 1 and 2 clearly talk about a state prior to creation. Verse 3 talks about the act of creation. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Notice the emphasis on the word being. Okay? Tuesday night, what are we talking about? We're talking about that chain of being, that chain of existence, same word. Okay? Here what we see is Jesus and and the Father are completely separate and distinct from being. Being is something they create. There is a wall between God and his creation, that creator-creature distinction. So it's a clear statement here that all things came into being through him and without him nothing was made that was not made. So this is a clear statement of deity because only God can create out of nothing. Then the next two verses, which I don't have a slides for, in him was life. So not only is he the source of all creation, but he's the source of life, and that his life is what illuminates man, mankind. Verse 4, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, we're going to shift. We saw... Act 1, scene 1, in verses 1 through 5. Now we see Act 1, scene 2, in verses 6 
through 13. 6 through 13 shifts from talking about the word, and now we have a new character on the stage, and this is a man named John. Now, in English, we read this and it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And in English, in your English translation, the word was in verse 6, the second was is in italics. Uh, in the New King James, the New American Standard didn't italicize it, but it's not, it's italicized because it's not in the original Greek. Verse 6, there was a man. Now you see you have the word was, and you have the word was all the way through verses 1 through 5. But the was sort of reminds you of whatever the meaning of is is, doesn't it? Uh, the was here in verse 6 isn't the same was as you have in 1 through 5. That was the verb me E-I-M-I, the verb me in the imperfect tense. Now we have a different Greek word, genomai. Now there are three words in Greek to talk where you want to talk about something existing, something is. That's called an existential verb. Something is, something comes into existence. So is means is. Okay, just in case you were wondering. The past tense is was. But this isn't a me. This isn't the word is. This is the word to come into existence, genomai. And so the contrast is in the beginning, the word always existed. But in contrast to that which always existed or continuously existed in the past, there was a man named John who came into existence. A man sent from God came into existence. The New American Standard translates it, there came a man sent from God. It's genomai. There came into existence. As opposed to the Lagos, who's continuously in existence, now you have John, who is a human being who comes into existence. And in this chapter, there's this contrast back and forth between the Lagos, who's continually existing, which means he's God, and the human, John the Baptist. Now, this passage then goes on to talk about the role of John the Baptist as a witness in verse 7, and he's there to bear witness of the light. Notice that imagery, for the purpose that all through him, that is through John, might believe. Our first use of 95 uses of belief in the gospel of John, and that's the issue, not believe and repent. That Repent was his message. The issue was belief. And it says, he, verse 9, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. What do you think we're talking about? Light, 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 this, this light coming in from darkness. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, that is, of his own, that is, the Jewish people, as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become, to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We believe God regenerates. We cannot regenerate ourselves. We can only believe, but God is the one who regenerates us. Now, verses 14 and 18 really tie it together for us. And the word became flesh. There's genomai. The word was a me continuously existing in past time. That indicates his deity. 
But when it says the word became flesh, that's coming into existence. That's the same word that was used of John in verse 6. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And that often when the word glory is used in the New Testament, it has that idea of, of the radiance of his essence. And so often the word stands for the essence of God. So when it says here, we beheld his glory, it's not talking about the the, the radiation, the, the, the Shekinah expression of his glory, the brilliant light, that was only seen one time during the incarnation on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that was only seen by uh, John and Peter and James. It wasn't seen by everybody. So John isn't talking about that glory. He's talking about the essence of God is revealed through the sun. That's that light shining in darkness. We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we shift back to John, bearing witness to him. And then in verse 18 we read, No one has seen the seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. So, uh, the Word becomes flesh, that's the incarnation. It was pre-existence, that's the deity of Christ. He's not just human, he is divine. And he is the one, therefore, who can explain God because he is one with God. So John 1 emphasizes the deity of Christ first, and then it's joined with the humanity of Christ. So to summarize it, number one, it teaches that Christ, as the Logos, already was, continued existence in past time, already was in the beginning at that point of creation, emphasizing his pre-existence, his eternal pre-existence. Second, we saw that it states that he was with God, personal fellowship. It's a distinct person, but they're having personal fellowship with one another. So God is personal. The Logos is personal. It's not an impersonal principle of reason, which is how the Greeks understood it. Third, the text says that he was God, meaning that he is fully divine, which means he's eternal. doesn't mean he came into existence sometime in eternal, eternity past and that he'll live forever, but that he has always been and always will be. Fourth, we learn from this that he's the ultimate revelation of God to man. Nothing can surpass him. And fifth, he is the God, he's the flesh, became flesh, so that he is the God-man. This fits with everything we saw from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, and Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be fully human and fully divine. And so sixth, we see also in this passage that he is the creator of all things, therefore he is God. Now in verse 18, he's called the only begotten son. The word begotten is from the Greek word monogenes, which really means unique or one of a kind. It's not doesn't emphasize birth or being born. It emphasizes uniqueness. Mono meaning one, a genes meaning like kind, like a genus or species. The word genus is a category or a type. So it's a one of a kind, the unique uh, son of God. A couple other passages, just so you uh, relate to them, is John 8:58, when Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees, 
And uh, he's been talking about Abraham, look forward to seeing my day. He said, they said to him, well, Abraham has been in his grave. And they said, well, how can you talk about what Abraham wants? And he replied by saying, before Abraham was, there's that past tense again, before Abraham was, I am, present tense. So the present tense there is emphasizing his continuous existence, but Abraham had a temporary existence in the past. John 12, this is the last passage, and one to remember is John 1, but I wanted to point these other ones out. In John 1, John 12, we're coming to the conclusion of the first main part of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written, why? To show the signs that Jesus gave of his Messiahship. These, it just says in John 20:31, these are written. What are the these? Well, you have to go back to the verse before. This is when Thomas uh, was doubting whether or not Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he doesn't really believe it. And he says, I want to put my hand on those nail prints in his hands, and I want to uh, feel the wound in his side, and only then am I going to believe. And then all of a sudden Jesus uh, appeared in the, the upper room there, and Thomas fell down and said, My Lord and my God. And so the, John then says that, that this was a sign of his resurrection. That's the eighth sign in the Gospel of John. So the last part of John uh, twenty thirty is uh, these was the last of his signs, but these are written. Okay, these refer back to the signs. That's the nearest reference in the previous verse. These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, seven of those signs were performed between chapter 1 and chapter 12. There's a clear break there before we get into the last sign, which is the resurrection. So John 13 begins with the upper room, the upper room discourse the night before he goes to the cross, the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Now, as John concludes this, first section of the gospel, he says, but although he had done so many signs before them, see, it wasn't just the eight. He did many, many other signs, but these eight are the ones that John emphasized, seven plus the great one of resurrection. They did not believe in him that the word of the Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, that's not saying God's uh, just reached down and turned their volition to negative. They've already gone negative. God is just allowing them, strengthening their choice that they've already made. He's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. That's a quote from Isaiah. John twelve forty one. John says, These things Isaiah said when he, Isaiah, saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, when did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus? When did Isaiah see Jesus? In Isaiah chapter 6, when he's before the throne of God. And he saw the glory of God. He saw the seraphim crying, singing, holy, holy, holy before the Lord. This was when he saw the glory of God. 
And there it's the fullness of God. All three members of the Trinity are there. So these things, Isaiah said, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So again, emphasizing the eternality and the glory, the essence of Jesus is fully God. So John 1, 1 is our first statement, our first passage, emphasizing the deity of Christ. The second passage is a relatively short one in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. 1, 15 is the key verse. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, again we see, first thing Paul states about Jesus, first he's the image of God, so he's fully God, and the next thing he says is he created everything. Oh yeah, that's right, creation isn't important, is it? That's just a distraction, it gets people all caught up in a in the wrong idea, so let's not let's not worry about creation evolution. Let's just let's just concede ground here. I was really saddened recently because I read a book review on my recent trip when I was on vacation, and it was a book review of uh, written by the um, Associates of Biblical Research, and I can't remember, the, and it doesn't matter the name of the book, and I'm not even going to mention the name of the book or either of the authors. But the one of the authors was a man who I had almost done my pastoral internship under in 1979, but he decided to resign from his church here in Houston at that time, and he went to be the president of Columbia Bible College. Later, he came back to that church for a while. I had first met him and gotten to know him when uh, he spoke several times at Camp Penile, and he had written an excellent little pamphlet on creation and evolution, and he was a young earth creationist. Now he's become an old earth creationist. He started compromising and assimilating. He made a shift about 15 years ago. About 20 years ago, he also went sort of semi-charismatic. And it just breaks my heart as I watch individual after individual begin to compromise with the thinking of the world uh, I've seen this with people in the pew. I've seen it with pastors in the pulpit and with theologians uh, in the seminary. And they just compromise the truth. And, and I look back over the, key, the men who were most instrumental in teaching me the truth of God's word as I was a young man, both before I went to college as a teenager and later. And there were some from a certain generation that held their ground. But many younger ones uh, that came up after them that were in that intervening generation started off right and have shifted over the years. And this is one of the reasons we see the uh, visible church today in the mess that it's in is because these men have compromised their spiritual integrity with the thinking of the world. And they they no longer believe the things that, that I heard them teach me when I was uh, when I was a young man, when I was in my twenties and and mid twenties, the time I was in seminary, creation's important. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. That's thinking, talking about different divisions of angels. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator again and again. This is a clear statement of his, of his full deity. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. 
and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we see these phrases. He's the image of the invisible God. This is the word icon. He, rep- he is a representation of the invisible God. Now we're going to see this same idea in Hebrews 1-3. He is the, uh, the, the flashing forth. He is the express image or radiance or uh, infulgence of the essence of God. And this is expressed in his glory. Notice 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, whose minds, talking about uh, unbelievers, the God of this age, that Satan, has blinded, uh, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. See, this isn't just something that Paul throws in as a nice idea. It's foundational to everything he says about Christ and about uh, about the Christian life and about salvation. It's not secondary. So um, John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the same glory that that Jesus expresses uh, to people in his ministry. He's the image of the invisible God. He, God the Father is unseen. No one has seen him at any time. John 1.18 said, uh, the Son has declared him. And then he's called the firstborn. The firstborn. This is a ter- term that can mean first in time, but it is also used many times to refer to somebody who is first in rank who is the preeminent one. And that's how it's used here to describe Jesus. He's not the first of those who are born, but he is the preeminent one. He is the exalted one. He is the one who is set over everything else. This comes again out of an Old Testament context. Psalm 89, 26, and 27 uses this term firstborn in relationship um, uh, to, to, to the Messiah, and this is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic, in this psalm written by David, it's, he's reflecting upon what God has done in giving this, this promise to him that one of his descendants would be, uh, eternally on, on, on his throne. Psalm 89, 26, 26, David writes, he shall cry, or the father's, he's putting in the words of the father, he shall cry to me, that is the Messiah. You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. That's not talking about justification. That's talking about deliverance. Uh, also, I will, God says, also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this is talking about his position, part of which is his ranking because of his exaltation at the ascension that he is set over all humanity as the one who is elevated to the right hand of God the Father. And then it is explained further about him that he is the one by whom all things were created, and God created all things through him, that's that second box, and for him. So he is the one who will be uh, the ruler of all things. Now I'm going to stop here. We're about to run out of time, so we'll pick up at the rest of this 
looking at verses 16 and 17 next time, and then Hebrews 1, 3, before we go back into our passage in Romans 9 and begin to deal with this. But it's important, and it just struck me as we're looking at Romans 9, 5, Paul is talking about the significance of the Jews and the Jewish people and God's continuous love for them, even though they're in rebellion. And right there at the beginning, he makes a non-compromising affirmation on the full deity of the Messiah. He never backs down on these important principles, and neither should we. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on these things, to reflect upon your word, to be reminded that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Godhead, and that he was with you in eternity past with the Holy Spirit, and that they have always, the three of you divine people, persons, have always been together and will continue, and it is a great privilege we have to be brought into fellowship with you uh, through the death and the burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we might gain greater appreciation for who Jesus is from this study, but also gain the knowledge we need to be able to explain him better to those to whom we witness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.